Well, I'm glad to be back, and I have no plans for being gone any time in the near future. So um, we will continue plotting forth in our study in First uh, Peter. Uh, just as a reminder, where we I've got to arrange things a little differently. Here. Um, just as a reminder, we're in chapter two of First Peter, uh, but we really are changing uh, sections up to this point. Uh, the emphasis of First Peter chapter 1 all the way to verse 10 of chapter 2 has been describing who the church is in Christ. And he, he finally laid out this beautiful picture of us resting on the rock. That was the last, the last sermon we looked at, how Christ, that living stone, that precious cornerstone, is the rock of our sure foundation in which we as living stones are being built up as a holy people, a royal priesthood. And so uh, he's now shifting gears a little bit. He's moving in to talk about, okay, as God's people being built up into into this dwelling place of God, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, you have to live in the world. And what does that look like? And he's going to get pretty specific. Um, And so he's going to examine for the next few chapters what it means to live in a world that is generally speaking, hostile to the gospel. And so this morning, we're just going to take a section of that. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Um, But just so you know, this is a bigger part of a bigger section going all the way to chapter 4. So with that, let's turn to our text. Uh, It is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. Hear God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is the emperor as supreme or to, the, to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if... When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds 
you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, some parts of this are difficult, and we ask for your help in understanding this. Um, Lord, help us to subject ourselves to you and to your word, that we would let it speak to our hearts and that we might live by it. Uh, Lord, be gracious to us in our understanding, and uh, we just thank you that you do speak. So we come to you and humble ourselves before your word this morning. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. The next chapter and a half uh, or so of this little book is hard. Um, In it, we find concepts that challenge the modern conscience, right? Uh, In in fact, the very word used here um, may cause, even here, some consternation. The word is more offensive than many of the four-letter words that we were taught not to say in polite society, at least in certain contexts. And even as Christians, we tend to avoid using it or discussing it unless we absolutely have to, right? It's kind of something we don't like to discuss. And, of course, the word here is submission or submit. Um, in, In the ESV, it translates it, be subject to. Hard words. And they're legitimately difficult concepts for us, especially in the face of wicked or harsh authority figures, whether that be government figure, a boss, a husband, or a parent. But interestingly, this is actually where Peter goes. He doesn't say, oh, you know, in these really healthy, you know, subordinate relationships, submit. But he goes to the worst examples and says, submit. So, for example, for Christians in Asia Minor who are under the thumb of the emperor, he says, submit to the emperor who's supreme. This same emperor would, in time, take Christians and bring them into a Colosseum and do all sorts of horrific acts to them. Peter himself, by tradition, faces such horrors. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, servants is a very kind way of putting it here in the ESV. Um, It isn't the common word for slave. Um, It is household servant is the word here. But this is a theme that we we see throughout throughout Scripture and uh, is here in our text as well. But it is slaves submit or servants submit to harsh masters. It's about as difficult a text as you can find. And then in the weeks to come, we'll look at submitting to unbelieving husbands. And this was spoken in a world where just a woman, especially a a wife, was a little bit of a step up from a slave, but had no voice of her own. And so for, and and was expected, by the way, to follow her husband's religion. And so for Peter to say, okay, wives, submit to this unbelieving husband who, you know, you're obviously 
rejecting his faith, and, and we'll have to look at that dichotomy. But that's a major ordeal. The harshest of situations. It's a difficult text. And yet we have before us God's word, which is profitable for us and is for our training in righteousness. And my hope this morning is that we'll not see this word in such an ignominious light, such a bad light. My hope is that we can maybe change, flip it a little bit. In fact, my hope is that we might find in this word, submit the glory and the beauty that is reflected in the person of Christ. That we would see beauty in it. Friends, embedded in this idea of being subject, embedded in it, is this concept that Christ himself submitted himself to the Father, gave himself up for us, put himself under death itself, and so is the very source of salvation. Friends, you are called to submit. But you're called to submit as those who have ultimate freedom. And your submission is first and foremost to the Lord Jesus who has set you free. That's kind of where I want to go this morning. I realize this is a very delicate topic. And so I'm breaking this in two parts. We'll talk about husbands and wives tomorrow. But today we'll look at submission to earthly authorities, sort of generally speaking. Today, it is our call to submit as those who are free, as those who are free slaves of Christ. That's, that's really complex. We are free slaves of Christ. So that's, that's the text. So we'll get there. And we'll look at this in three parts. The first thing is I, wanna, I want us to look at this idea of running counter to the culture. We're called to run counter to the culture. Verses 11 and 12 introduce the whole section. So not just these, this chapter, not just even the next chapter, but kind of introduces the whole section all the way up to chapter 4. And he starts by sort of, he gives a brief reminder of where they've already been. Uh, he says in this, in this verse right here, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He had just reminded uh, the people of God uh, in the very last section that they're called to put off malice and anger and all the things of the flesh and to, as living stones, grow and be built up into this household of the living God. But he also draws on this language of sojourners and exiles. Uh, it's likely that this, these, this pairing of words, sojourners and exiles, two words that kind of mean similar things. One really emphasizes uh, sort of, you might say, somebody who's an expat, somebody who's living in a land that is not their own, but they've established that, that, they're, that they're present there and they live there as an expat. The other word is really this idea of uh, um, somebody who has uh, been exiled or is looking forward to a place other than where they're at. They, 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 their eyes are somewhere else. So one is about the life stuff of living in a place that's not their own. The other is sort of looking at a place that is their own. Um, that's, that's a rough way to look at it, but uh, those two words together. But these words are taken from Genesis chapter 23. In Genesis chapter 23, Abraham, you remember Abraham, 
He was called out of his home to go to a place that he didn't know. And he took his family with him and he marched on a journey towards the land of Canaan. And in Genesis chapter 23, Sarah, his wife, has died. Now he's living in Canaan, which is not a land that belongs to him, but it was the land of promise. And so in this section, he's talking to the people who own the land and he's saying to them, can I have a spot of land to bury my wife? I'm an, I'm an exile. I'm a sojourner. I, I, I don't belong here, but I'd like a spot of land. I'd like a little plot for my wife, to bury my wife. Of course, Abraham was looking forward to an inheritance. He was recognizing that he wasn't in his home, and he was looking forward to an inheritance. And so it is for the people to whom Peter is writing. He's saying... You, 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 who were formerly pagan, who were formerly living in this land as people who lived here, have been, spiritually speaking, made exiles and sojourners. You're not what you once were. You, this is not your home. And you are looking forward to an inheritance. Do you remember that language of inheritance from chapter 1? To an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for you by faith. This is... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did through his resurrection. So they're looking forward to this inheritance, and he's reminding them of this. And he's saying, as those who are no longer a part of this world, but are looking forward, don't conform to it. Don't look like it. Abstain yourselves. Distance yourself from the passions of the flesh, from the ways of the world. And he says, remember who you are. You're a holy people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He had just called them those things. He said, you were called out of darkness into light. You are new creation. This is not your home anymore. And then he shifts. So he's kind of looking back, saying, reminding them of these things. And then he says, as a holy people, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, the unbelievers, Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's saying that how we conduct ourselves in this world as sojourners and exiles matters. It matters. And he assumes a few things about the world. First, he assumes that their lives, because the world is their home, their lives, the lives of the people of God, will look fundamentally, or the, I mean of the people of the land, will look fundamentally different from those of the Christians. There's two different worlds. Now, I'm going to stop here because I think maybe this seems obvious. As Christians, we have a different set of moral grounds, right? We have a different set of beliefs, a different set of marching orders. And maybe this seems obvious to you that our lives are to look different than the world around us. But maybe it isn't so obvious. What do I mean by that? Christians, I think, in every generation vacillate between two poles. The first pole that we sometimes vacillate to or towards is to become like the world, to be accepted by the world, or to assimilate to the world, right? 
capitulate, whatever word you want to say, become conformed to the world's standards. There's always a press for the believer to kind of just fade into the culture. The whole Old Testament is of the Israelites basically fading into the culture over and over again. But I think there's an opposite pole, and that is to reject the world and to completely distance ourselves from it, to escape it, to get out of it, and to huddle ourselves up and to avoid the world at all costs because, well, we fear that other pole, right? That's, that's kind of the opposite reaction. And in both cases, whether you are prone towards moving towards the culture and becoming like it, or you're prone to, to escaping the world and protecting yourself and putting up walls and avoiding the world, there is a similar thing that is going on. I think in both cases, it is the discomfort of not being accepted. In both cases. On the one hand, it's like, well, I, I really like you. Would you please like me? I'll do these. I'll look like you. And on the other hand, it's like, you don't like me? Well, I don't like you. Stay away. I'm going to get out. I'm going to push you away. There's that discomfort. But Peter here is suggesting doing something other. He's saying, live in the world. Live in it. And it will speak ill of you. Did you see that? It says, when it speaks ill of you. It's not a question of if. It's not a question of maybe. It says, when it speaks ill of you. It's, it's actually putting your play, yourself in the position of living in a place where you will be confronted with the discomfort of not being liked. Who here likes being in that position? Not me. And the reality is, it's because Christians are weird. They're strange. You are strange. I'm strange. And that's what we're called. Strangers, aliens, other, not like the culture. And this strangeness of Christians is what causes or ought to cause offense Sometimes we cause offense because of other reasons, and he'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but when we do good and when we follow Christ, there ought to be a sense in which we're different. It looks different. And that goodness is what causes offense. And why does our, why does our goodness, or our, and I wouldn't say it's our goodness, but why does our sort of living life before the face of God in obedience to his word by the grace of the Holy Spirit, that's sort of my very compact way of saying, you know, that our living is all by grace and by faith, and yet we are called to that walk, that sanctification stuff. Why does it cause such offense and consternation to the world? I think there are a few reasons. I think first and foremost, the world in its rebellion to God calls good evil and calls evil good. It's part and parcel to the rebellion of the fall. We call good evil and evil good. So that when we do good, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, the world sees it as evil. And this is the, maybe the most troubling aspect of our being countercultural, to running against the culture, because... When we strive to obey God, we find ourselves out of step 
with culture's morality, with their sort of standards. And that place is very discomfitting, isn't it? We don't like it. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to follow Christ. And someone looks at you and you're evil. Maybe you don't feel that. I I feel that. I often joke, you know, back in uh, uh, high school, we had to read the Scarlet Letter. Read the Scarlet Letter, right? It was a highly morally religious, zealous people who punished this woman for committing adultery. Meanwhile, the ones punishing were the ones who also were committing adultery. Big, complicated mess. But she had to wear this scarlet letter. A, everybody knew that she was a sinner. I think Christ calls us to wear a scarlet letter. Not of the sin of God's word. That would be wrong. But to actually wear the obedience of Christ in such a way that people will call you evildoers. It's a hard word. But there is a a second aspect to this, why the world looks on us and calls us evildoers. There's a second reason. And when we, in fact, obey God and do what is right, what happens is the law of God confronts the unbeliever. They're confronted with the truth. When you walk in and you say, well, I don't really want to gossip with you all because I, don't, it's just, I think it's mean. I think it's mean-spirited. I don't think it's good. You know, it's offensive. Whatever you say, when you sort of abandon the gossip circle and you do that, what, how do people respond? You've got goody two-shoes, right? You're a, you're a holier-than-thou. You, you are whatever it is they say. Why? Because they're confronted with their own sin. They're confronted with the truth of God's word. And so by your very actions, they feel judged. And and this isn't because you're trying to judge them. Oftentimes you're very sweet and kind about it. You're gracious. You're apologetic. You do all sorts of things to say, you know, I oftentimes struggle with these same things, but I'm trying. You, you, You try to soften the blow, but no matter what you do, they feel judged. Why? Have you ever had a fellow unbeliever say that to you? Like a friend who says, when I'm around you, I feel judged. And you're like, I'm not trying to judge you. I'm nobody. I'm the worst of sinners. You may say all those things, but it's because your life is representing the way of the Lord. And your sweetness and your kindness makes it all the worse sometimes. And what happens? Well, it reinforces point one. I don't like feeling judged. I feel guilty. So I'm going to call this thing that we're doing good and what you're doing evil. Right? So it goes back to point one. Friends, I understand the impulses to change, to become like the culture. I understand them deeply. And I understand the impulses to run and hide and avoid culture altogether. But our call is to bear witness to the gospel by being counter to the culture within the context of the culture. To to step in line with Christ and his word in the face of the world and take on whatever evil words are said to us. That's a hard thing. But as we do this, we bear witness to Christ. Did you notice what happens? It says, 
in this section here. He says that as, as you, they see your good deeds. What does it say? And glorify God. Now, interestingly, it says, and glorify God on the day of visitation, which seems to indicate that he's not necessarily speaking of salvation for these people, but when they finally see truth for what it is, when God comes in the person of Jesus Christ at the second coming, and all the, the, the deeds of men are exposed, and they see their sin, and they see the glory of Christ and the works of Christ through you, they glorify God, because what else can you do when you see God? But I want to encourage you that for some of the folks that you meet to whom you live out this walk in humbleness and recognition that it's by grace, you show forth the gospel. And people say, that's different. I want what they have. I want it. I want to know the, the hope and the, I want to be out of the mess of the struggles and things that I, and the relationships that are a mess. I want to know how it is that these folks have such joy in the face of reviling. As you walk counter to the culture, you offer the gospel of grace. You bear witness. Where our actions in the world matter, and Peter moves to specific ways to act in verses 13 to 20. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, which brings me to this point, that you're called to live as the free people of God. Now, this, is, uh, this concept of being subject is extremely counterculture. If you want to know what is the most countercultural thing you can do, you can say, you know, I am one who submits. Like, Nobody says that. Nobody does that. That's, uh, the world, the way the culture works is if you're, in a, if you're under authority, your goal is to gain power and maybe you do it in different ways to subvert the authority that's above you and gain power and authority yourself so that you can exert control. So it's sort of that Marxist kind of constant pull and push and you can apply it to so many different things. But that's the way the world works. So when you say, actually, I'm... I'm going to submit to the authority before me. <laughs> You're saying something that is so countercultural, so opposite. But here's the, the interesting thing I think we're called to live as free people. I think that's what the text teaches us. And maybe this is, seems counter to what Peter's saying. He's saying, submit. He says, this. Over and over again, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This is like the head, whoops, this is the heading line. This, this be subject to every human institution is the subject line for the next couple chapters. Submit. It's an exhortation. And so what do you mean, Rob, when you say be free? That doesn't seem to make sense. That, that Peter's saying submit and you're telling us to be free. He's saying, obey, be subject to, and you're saying that we're to call to be free. Well, one commentator noted that worldly submission is very different than Christian submission. And I think I tend to agree with this statement. Um, Worldly submission tends to be narrow and focused. In, In other words, it means that the one who submits 
is not doing it because they have a choice, right? You submit because you don't have a choice. You're forced into it. And they only submit as far as they must or that they might be forced to. So there's not that natural, like, oh, I'm going to submit. So, for example, a soldier fears his commanding officer in the military courts and thus submits to the harshness of his duties. Sure, he volunteered himself for it, but once he's in there, fear is what drives it, right? (laughs) And duty and, sure, other things, but, but there is a sense in which they drive this idea of fear home because they need you to obey under the harshest and most violent of circumstances. You need to obey without thinking. So they use that means citizens obey the laws in as much as they don't cause harm or they don't get punished this is this is just average joe citizen out there right but if there's no obvious harm in breaking the law and no fear of reprisal a citizen often will not submit those little white signs that have numbers on them that's submit-ish Kind of loosey-goosey with it. That's an easy one. What about tax evasion? If you're not going to get caught, who, what harm does it really do, right? Some people just will evade taxes, pay it under the table, whatever, you know, you can do it. Fraud. You can pull it off and get away with it. In fact, I would argue that in, in our culture, if there's a law that seems particularly silly or ridiculous, even amongst those in authority, it's often acceptable to break it. As long as you don't do it grossly or in an obvious way. Similarly, workers obey their bosses as long as they're being watched, right? But what about when the boss is away? When I was back in college, this is to my shame, by the way, but when I was back in college, I worked at a, a, a boatyard. It was manual labor, and I had worked some manual labor jobs. And, you know, when I first started in those manual labor jobs, my, my thought was, work as hard as you can, work as hard as you can. That's what you do. And I did. And, and then as I did that, I watched the people around me. When the boss was gone, the, like, level dropped. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. And they'd look at me and, like, that doesn't seem right. Soon I was there with them, relaxing. Oh, here comes the boss. Let's get to work. Let's work hard. To my shame. Christian submission is of a completely different source. It's born out of freedom. It's born out of freedom. Verse 16 says it this way. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves to God. Doulas, slaves to God. Uh, on our trip out to Ohio, we had the joy of listening to a book. Uh, we listened to The Little Princess, or A Little Princess. I don't know if anybody's read it. Um, it's really good, okay? I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, as a kid, as a, as, a, as a brother of two sisters, I often read Little Women, Little Princess. But it was fun to go back and re-listen to it. And the story of The Little Princess is this girl who has all the means, all the wealth, all the capital. She is the daughter of this wealthy captain, and she goes to this boarding school while her father's in India, and she goes to this boarding school in London, and she is lavished upon. She has the richest of things, and, and there's a little bit of resentment going on, but generally speaking, she's a very lovely, nice girl. Well, 
her father loses all his wealth. And so she finds herself impoverished. And the headmistress is so mad because she's put out money that is not going to be repaid and so makes this little girl a slave. And this girl obeyed uncomplainingly. The more she was hurt by this woman, the more she was tortured, the more food that was removed from her, the more frustrated this headmistress would get. Because every time she tried to do something to this little girl, Sarah, the little girl, Sarah, would act as though she was unaffected and free. It was an amazing, it's just a story, of course. And, of course, she gets all her fortunes returned to her at the end. It's kind of Job-like. But the point is this, that as Christians, our submission, our willingness to obey, isn't based on the person who is directly in authority to us. We're free from them. We're free. We don't, they don't affect us. But we are submitting ourselves to the Lord who's called us to obey who's called us to live in a godly way, who's called us to be good. And so when the the hurt comes and the trials come and the pain comes, we don't feel this angst the way that maybe someone in the world might feel who's under the same authority, because we're free. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by being free? Well, look at the text a little bit further with me. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It goes on, honor everyone, love your brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. But then, jump down. He says, and he's talking about the pain and sorrow and struggle of, of being a slave under a harsh master. He says this, For this, verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Mindful of God. It's like the little princess who takes whatever this horrible woman brings her and and says, okay, I'll do it. Why? Because she's mindful of her Savior, mindful of God. And what does it mean to be mindful of God? And this, I, I'm going to jump to my final point. I, there was a lot more to be said, and I didn't get to it all. Um, but I want to just cl- conclude with these thoughts at the end. What does it mean to be mindful of God as we suffer under unjust treatment in whatever station we find ourselves? He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Christ also suffered for you. Think about this just, just for a minute. What does it mean to be free? It means to not be under the yoke of the law, not to be weighed down by our sin, but to be set free, to be redeemed, to be called the children of God, to be called a holy people. What does it mean to be set free? It means that you are no longer under the curse of of death and how is that possible because of what Jesus has done he submitted himself to the will of the father and he subjected himself to the cross to do what to die for our sin he who committed no sin 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus subjected himself to the horror of the cross that we might be set free. So what a little thing it is for us, friends. Whatever station, whatever painful thing we find ourselves in, what a, what a beautiful thing it is for us to follow Jesus. There are so many more things I'd like to address, and we'll come back to it next week, so I don't want to... We'll come back to this servants and masters. It's a big issue, and we'll, we'll look at wives and husbands, which is also a big issue. We'll kind of pull those two things out. But I want you, just on a big picture front, remember, you are free in Christ, and you are slaves to righteousness, to walk in a way that bears witness to the power of the gospel, in a world that is going to revile you, but also to a world that is watching who will, in the last day, give glory to God. Friends, don't lose heart. Stand firm in what you know. Don't run to hide and don't capitulate. But walk that painful path entrusting yourself to the one who gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.